are in Romans 1, 16 through 32, and um, let's go ahead and just read that entire section together, just so we have a framework to, to launch from today. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous will live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, both His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the likeness of corruptible man, and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them over to dishonorable passions, for their females exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the males abandoned the natural function of the female and burned in their desire toward one another. Males with males committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to an unfit mind to do those things which are not proper. Having been filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips. Slanderers, haters of God, violent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, and disobedient to parents. Without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the righteous requirement of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. So... Young people, whether you know it or not at this point in your lives, you live in a woke culture. A woke culture. Show of hands, have you heard that term before? Okay, excellent. So we're not starting from zero. That's good. I didn't think we would be, but it's always good to take a temperature check. Woke has been defined as to be informed, educated, and aware of social injustices. That's the definition there's a lot of definitions. That's a pretty good one. If it were just that, though, um, then I and countless others would not be preaching a sermon about the woke culture, right? If it was just awareness of these issues, it wouldn't really be that big of a deal. So there must be something more behind it, right? The woke ideology is a framework that undergirds or supports a whole host of issues that we see playing out in our society. You've probably heard of some of the big ones, transgenderism, homosexuality, race relations, economic and social justice, 
police brutality, abortion rights, and so on. These are all being played out in the world right now, and behind it, feeding it and propelling it forward is this woke ideology um, that's really kind of taken a life of its own that goes way beyond that original definition that I just read for you. And at first glance, if you are a compassionate person at all, you may be tempted to think about these important topics you might not say that, uh, you might not think, for instance, that abortion is right, and you correctly call it the murder of an unborn child. You'd be right. But at the same time, you may say to yourself, well, what harm can it cause me individually if two homosexuals decide to get married? After all, what does it really matter? Love is love, right? That's what, that's what you hear a lot of. You may also say to yourself, what about equality for certain races in our society? It's a good thing, isn't it? Shouldn't we end horrible things like police brutality? Shouldn't, we, shouldn't black people have the same help, uh, have some help getting ahead in our society? Don't black lives actually matter? And you would probably say, to some degree, that there's some truth in some of those things. These are important questions for our society, and they do deserve attention. And quite frankly, the Bible has a lot to say about all of those topics. But I want you to understand, what I'm going to try and do is help you understand that the woke treatment of these types of issues is just a front. It's a facade. And I'm, I'm going to project a little bit it. It is Satan up to his same old tricks, and we'll unpack that a little bit more. It's critical to understand that the woke culture is not attempting to address these issues at all. The woke ideology uses these controversial societal issues to drive a wedge into the fabric of society so that it can destroy what exists. It, it, it imparts itself into a weakness, into a thread of society, and it attempts to break it apart. That's its sole end, and they'll use whatever means necessary. There's a, the woke movement is, um, is not about racial equity and inclusion. It wants to alter social and political landscape of America, and quite frankly, the entire world. It's just starting here, lucky for us. That there is a woke social agenda at work behind the headline issues is, is true. But listen to how some of these folks who represent this represent themselves. So Patrice Cullors, don't know her, but she's one of the founders of Black Lives Matters. You guys have all heard of BLM, right? Black Lives Matter. Um, she described herself and the leadership of the BLM, BLM organization as being informed by Marxism. Accordingly, the BLM organization was interested in more than just alleged uh, police brutality against black Americans. It was also intent, and this was on their website, now down, but was once on it, disrupting, it's intent on disrupting what is called the Western prescribed nuclear family structure and seeking to foster a queer affirming network with the intention of freeing ourselves from heteronormative thinking. Now, there's a lot of big words, and you're going to find out that a lot, time, a lot of times these woke people use huge words because you think, well, man, if I don't know what that means, they must be smarter than me, so they must be right. So big words, what does that mean? Heteronormative just means that it's the type of thinking that comes from a perspective of just heterosexual, straight men marry women, and women marry men. That's heteronormative thinking, okay? 
So what did you hear there? And hopefully you heard it. You heard that they are seeking to destroy God's structure for the family. Where does that fit in with black lives and police brutality? It doesn't. It has nothing to do with black lives. Black lives are just a convenient vehicle to ride in on the way to destroying society. And I hope that makes sense. Ask yourselves this. Why don't I hear nearly as much about black lives anymore? We don't hear about that too much. We don't see as many protests out in the street burning down cities because um, a black person was killed by a a police officer or something. All I seem to hear about now is homosexual rights, transgender rights. Would you guys agree with that? It's kind of what you're hearing a lot more of now for some of you who are plugged in. Well, the answer to that is because homosexual rights and transgender rights are the new, faster vehicle that is destroying society. So what are our woke friends doing? They're riding in that car. Okay? So it has nothing to do with what their self-righteous proclamation is about helping somebody who's oppressed. It has everything to do about destroying the fabric of society. And what was our society based on? God's word. Now, we were not an American culture. We're going to do a whole conference about this pretty soon next year. We're not ever a Christian uh, country. But our norms, our laws were founded on on Judeo-Christian morality, on the Ten Commandments and what God has said about what's right and wrong. And they are seeking to destroy that. And so their rebellion is really against who? It's against God. Right? So one of the ways that wokeism, I'm going to give you a few examples here. One of the ways that wokeism is attempting to destroy the family is by blowing it up at the very core of God's creation of male and female. This is the transgender issue, right? So listen to this letter that was written in to NPR radio, which is crazy liberal uh, these days. Um, and they're bought in hook, line, and sinker on all this stuff. But this is a letter written in to a mom named Carter about her son, Jack. So listen to the woke thinking. Jackie just looked really, really sad. Sadder than a a three-and-a-half-year-old should look, Carter said. This weight that looked like it weighed more than she did. Something that had to say, I don't know what it was. So I asked, I said, Jackie, are you sad that you're not going to school today? And Jackie was really quiet and put her head down and said, No, I'm sad because I'm a boy. Carter was taken aback. Her youngest had been wearing her big sister's dresses regularly and enjoyed donning pink boots. But this was new. Carter wanted to confirm. You're really not happy being a boy, she asked. I thought a little bit longer and I said, well, are you happy being you? And that made Jackie smile. And I felt like that for a moment. That was, that was all that really mattered. And that was the day. Carter took her to the chain drug store and Jackie asked for elastic hair bands. Her hair wasn't long enough yet, but Carter put Jackie's hair up in five makeshift ponytails. And I've never seen such a happy child, she remembers. To go from maybe an hour before this, this child who looked so sad to that, I feel, felt like I had finally done something right by her. And now poor Jack not Jackie, poor Jack, is in no doubt down the road to become mutilated or be taking some drugs that have irreversible effects in order to change him into some grotesque form of a girl. 
And the saddest part is that this is being done under the supervision of the one who should be nurturing and caring for Jack the most, his mother, Carter, who is no doubt bought in completely to the lies of woke ideology. This is happening all over the place. Another important aspect to wokeism is the tactic of language. This is really important. If you were at our CRT conference, you heard about defining terms, and it's really important. The leaders of the woke movement understand that if they openly assault the tenets of society, people will push back. Right? If you just try to break that door down, a bunch of us guys are going to go in there and stop that threat. Right? But if some um, malevolent force would seek to come and do us harm and just slip in looking like all of you, sit right there quietly for a little while, um, and then attack us, we would be caught unawares, right? So that makes sense. So Satan's smart. He's been doing this for several thousand years. He's, he's getting good at it. So they don't usually come with a full frontal assault, and sometimes they do, and those are easy to spot, like Antifa wearing all the black and burning stuff down. Bad guys, right? Can we all agree on that? But the other guys are a little shifty. They're crafty. Remember that word, crafty. It's biblical. So... Um, some of what you hear of the woke camp, um, most of it rather, is, is crafty. It's carefully chosen language that has enough truth in it to make it plausible. Sometimes the woke camp doesn't try to be obviously anti-God. Sometimes it says God actually is for this. He endorses this. This is interesting. It says the Bible is true. The Bible's true, absolutely. You're just interpreting it wrong. So they're going to help you understand the Bible. It may say, read the Bible, of course, but understand that most of it's not applicable to today. Right? Like, for instance, when's the last time you saw somebody being stoned in the streets for adultery? Right? It doesn't happen anymore. It's antiquated. It's good information to have. It doesn't apply today. Whatever tack they take, they seek to use God's word to approve their actions. And this is nothing new. Satan has been using this technique ever since the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, all those trees. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, and you guys can probably finish this, you will not surely die. And on and on, and it's gone since the Garden of Eden. And this is just a new form of it. Now, I'll give you an example of this. Um, <clears throat> Satan's still up to his old tricks. Let's look at Ibram X. Kendi. Some of you who are at Masters and in the college world have probably heard of him, and some of you else might have, but he's really one of the, the early and still continual leaders in, in this woke uh, movement. Kendi was speaking at a conference for not college students, not corporate America. He was at a church, a big one, United Church of Christ, or we'll call it the UCC. And he was doing a Q&A, and its moderators asked him, what he imagined that they needed to say to the UCC, which is 84% white, in order to understand the complexities of being in a multicultural, multiracial church. Help, help educate us, Ibram. And so this is what Kendi said. And listen to Satan's deception, the craftiness. I think it's critically important for the church to be guided in this ministry. 
by a liberation theology. If you're taking notes, write that down. By a liberation theology as opposed to a savior theology. He went on to explain that liberation theology presupposes that Jesus was a revolutionary who came to inspire people to revolt and transform their conditions to liberate themselves from oppression. Thus, the job of the church is to serve as a meeting place for that revolution against oppression. Sounds impassioned, doesn't it? He said, he went on to say, the job of the Christian is to be consistently inspired by the revolutionary example of Christ. Savior theology, he said, presupposes that Jesus came to save people from their uncivilized, backward ways. What do we call that? Call that sin, right? And the job of the church and the church leaders within that theology is to be a civilizing agent to save people from themselves. Savior theology largely operates in the church and assimilationist ideas. What are assimilationists? They believe that white culture is not only superior, but the standard. Assimilationists have historically made the case that black, brown, and indigenous people can be civilized and reach the pinnacle of white culture. And that's created all sorts of problems, he said. Did you catch that? What he did? In one quick move, Kendi just changed who Christ was and is. What his purpose was in redemptive history. He changed the gospel. He changed the purpose of the church. Did you catch that? He said Jesus, though, to the UCC. And so it must be right. It must be palatable, right? And that crafty old serpent is still up to his old tricks. He just has a shiny new vehicle to deliver his lies. And you may say, just uh, by way of understanding, the UCC is way off, obviously, right? must be a small backward organization, Most of the church wouldn't fall for something as obviously um, dishonest as that. Well, the UCC has 4,794 churches. What? 773,000 members. It's not one organization, obviously, or not one church, obviously. It's got 10,000 clergy leaders, has 300 global partnerships. It's a huge organization. Their website says, get this, They are a church of extravagant welcome, seeking a just and peaceful world. That's their purpose. Ours is Colossians 128. That's theirs. How do they promote that? This is all on their website. How do they promote that? By defending the rights of our transgender siblings. Church. They do it by fighting for reproductive justice and abortion access. Church. By acting to end gun violence, and so on and so on. It's all over their website. Church. So it's pervasive. It's pervasive. You might ask yourself, how does someone who professes to know Christ as Savior come to such conclusions? How could that happen? I'll give you a taste of how Satan accomplishes this. The Human Rights is our last example. The Human Rights campaign had this article. What does the Bible actually say about homosexuality? Great question, right? Some of you might be tempted to, to Google that. I, I Googled that in my uh, research for this, for this sermon. And it says, and I apologize again, some of these folks use big words when they want to impress, so I'll try to define as I go. But this is what they say the Bible says about homosexuality. Listen to how the Satan says, surely you will not die. 
It's the same old thing. While gender complementarity, which just means men marry women and women marry men, is indeed rooted in passages from Genesis 1 and 2. And it's worth, worth noting that these stories, stories say God began by creating human beings of male and female. So, okay, we have some truth. Satan's tactic number one identifies some truth in there, right? But... This is not the good but like that you would see in, in uh, Ephesians or, or even in 1 Corinthians. But there is nothing that indicates in Scripture that God only created this binary. So we're already off, right? And what does binary mean? Binary means that there's only two genders. There's only two sexes. Binary is two, okay? This account says little to nothing about gender, which is the social and cultural norms and practices corresponding to what is considered masculine and female. Two dimensions of that text that become important in considering the biblical affirmation of intersex, transgender, non-binary, and other gender-diverse people. To further complicate the argument against same-sex relationships, Scripture doesn't suggest that respecting biblical authority means Christians should reject experience. Note that. Should reject experience as a teacher. In fact, what Jesus said... I almost can't read this. In fact, what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount about good trees bearing good fruit and bad trees bearing bad fruit from Matthew 7 indicates experience should inform how we learn God's truth. What? That's right. You can throw out the Bible. It's just a story that only tells part of the story. The real truth is not from His Word, but is based on what? Experience. And now we're off to the races. You can do anything. You can justify anything now. This is how you feel, Right? Are there a few warnings in Scripture about trusting your own emotions and your own experience and your own conscience that's been seared? There are. You get to decide what God's truth is based on what you want it to be. And you guys, Satan truly has outdone himself in this age. He really has. So this is what's going on in the world. This is the world you are inheriting. You who are teenagers, what are you supposed to do with this information? What are you supposed to do with this stuff? Right? Right now you're being a bit cocooned, right? Your parents take the brunt of this stuff. They filter all this stuff out for you. They make wise decisions uh, governed by God's word so you don't feel the implications of this stuff. But that's going away. Some of you are weeks out from going out on your own. Some of you are a year out. Some of you are just a couple of years out. You're on the doorstep of this. And this fight is here. This fight is on your doorstep. This fight is in your house. Right now. Now I'm going to talk a little bit about that. So what do I want to do? First, I want to warn you that this fight is here. Uh, that you will come face to face with this. But I also want to warn you that it is in your homes already. It's not just in corporate America and universities. It is in your house. And a lot of it comes through entertainment. Books, movies, TV, social media, music. I don't care what it is. You've already seen that it's in the church. Are you kidding me? Is it not on Disney Plus? Right? Is it not in Star Wars? Of course it is. Is it not in your music, on country music even? Good, solid, grassroots country music? Man, that's even going down. Like, we can't trust that anymore. What can you trust, right? It's all over the place. It is everywhere. 
Second, it's important to understand that wokeism is just a label, and hopefully I've already made this case, it's a label for rebellion against God's law revealed in Scripture. It's just the latest iteration of rebellion. It's manifested itself in multiple ways throughout history. You know, the Greeks had their mythology that gave, gave them you know, approval to pursue any of their vices and desires. The Romans had philosophies that sought justification in their own deities. There was Gnosticism that, that so many of the apostles dealt with in their epistles. There was humanism that rose up, um, which is really just kind of says, like, we can answer all of our own questions. We don't need God. There have been false religions like Catholicism, Islam, Mormonism that all distort biblical truth. The latest shot fired by Satan in this world happens to be woke. Okay, so, and it's important to understand that because the fight is the same. Um, And it's also understood what is going on in the world so that you do have a fight against it. At the end of the uh, day, we have two camps in the world. You've probably heard this before. There are those who are for God, and there are those who are against God. There is the light that is for him, and there is the darkness that is against him. And everything falls into those two categories. There's only two types of people. Those who are sinners redeemed going to heaven, those who are sinners rebelling against God going to hell. That's it. It's really simple, you guys. It's not complicated. So the camp that, it, God lo- the camp that is for God loves God, stands for fidelity to his word. There's an allegiance to Christ that is found in Psalm 139. I, I hate what God hates and I love what God loves. There's an absolutism to the adherence of biblical truth based out of love for God and who redeemed us, who purchased us for a price. And that is what drives your love and obedience. And it's very clear. And on the other hand, you have those who oppose God. God's word, Christ, and his truth, they are in darkness. And in case you're not clear so far, wokeism is dark. It's very dark. Darkest I've seen in my 45 years, 44. That's right. (laughs) Jesus said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In John 3.19, Jesus said, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. It does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may, carry, may be clear, clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So it's my goal today to shine a light in this darkness. And we're going to do that in Romans 1.16. And we're going to have to, we're going to, have to be in some darkness, uh, unfortunately, a little bit. But this is important. This is the Word of God. This section of Scripture speaks to two groups of people, the righteous and the wretched. And yes, Jackson Street, I know that wretched starts with a W, but it's still alliteration when you say it out loud. All right? Audible alliteration. Are you with me? Okay. So the righteous. We're going to be in the first camp, the righteous. We're going to start off joyful. Gospel. We love the gospel. Gospel's in the light. That's great. Let's be in the light for a little bit. Paul says in verse 16 that he is not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. So the gospel exposes man's sin, wickedness, depravity, and lostness, and declares works-based righteousness like those of the woke camp, to be worthless in God's sight. They're worthless. Paul didn't care about worldly accolades, comfort, popularity, 
His sole focus was for men to be saved. That was all he was about. He was unashamed. And there are four key words, and this outline comes from um, John MacArthur. I couldn't improve upon it. It's a great outline for it, so hopefully this will help you understand. There's four key words that are critical for understanding the gospel. You may want to note them. This is under the righteous, so big heading righteous, second heading um, the first part of salvation, aspect of salvation, is because it is the power of God. If the woke culture has taught us anything, it's that people want to be changed. Do they not? They want to feel less guilty. They want to be happier. They want, to, they want their desires to be fulfilled. Whether those may be power, money, position, or even salvation, people recognize that there's a problem with the world. There is a problem, right? We would be fools not to confront that. The problem is that any man-made religion, and wokeism is a modern-day pagan religion, any religion or philosophy outside of the gospel is impotent. It has no power. It is useless. But the real gospel has the power to change. Not only our end result, but also our present circumstances. Paul reveals man's weakness and God's power throughout the book of Romans and other epistles. Romans 5, 6 says, For a while we were still weak at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 8, 3, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did by sending His only Son. 1 Corinthians 1, 18, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the what? The power of God. In verse 1 Corinthians 22, uh, 122 through 23, For indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and weakness of God is stronger than men. So secondly, it's, the gospel is powerful, but powerful for what? Well, the second aspect of the gospel is that it's powerful for salvation. It's powerful for salvation. This is good news, because we all need salvation. The gospel transforms their nature and giving them eternal life through His Son. And salvation has this idea of rescue. But rescue from what? Rescue from the ultimate penalty of sin, which is spiritual death extended into tormented eternal punishment. And we see in the woke movement that regardless of the words they use to describe their quest, men are continually looking for salvation of one kind or another. Some look for economic salvation, others for political or social salvation. Many are looking for inner salvation from guilt, frustrations, unhappiness. There's an element, you guys, to the woke issues out there that should break your heart. Because they are unhappy. They are seeking after the wrong things to fulfill themselves. But MacArthur says this, and I love this. Salvation through Christ is God's powerful hand, as it were, that he has let down to lift men up. His salvation brings deliverance from the spiritual infection of this perverse generation, from lostness, from sin, and from the wrath of God. It brings deliverance to men from their gross and willful spiritual ignorance, from their evil self-indulgence, and from the darkness of false religion, but only for those who believe. 
then you hear that woke, those woke issues that we highlighted in the beginning and, and all those kind of things that, that the gospel saves them from, from John MacArthur. That is the answer. That's the answer. But who is it available for? For those who believe. So the third key word in understanding the gospel is faith. It's faith. The last part of 116 says to everyone who believes. Believes has the idea of trusting in or relying in something. You're all doing it right now. You're putting faith in the chair that you're sitting in, right? You looked at it and you said, yeah, I think that can hold me up. And maybe you're seeing, you know, okay, well, it can hold, you know, some other people up. I'm thinking I'm feeling pretty good. Okay, we're going to do it. But at the end of the day, you're, ex- you're exhibiting some sort of faith, and we do it all the time. Um, but this faith, this trusting and relying in something, Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. It is a, it is a faith that you can't do on your own. God has to give it to you. Eternal life is both gained and lived by faith, which is given to us by God. And salvation is not just professing to be a Christian or being baptized or going to church or doing good works. And hopefully, I I always never want to assume that any or all of you are saved. I can't do that because I haven't seen your fruit yet. Some of you I know better than others, but... But I just want to make sure you understand salvation is not just professing to be a Christian. Salvation is not just being baptized. Salvation is not doing good things and doing a work day with youth group. That is not salvation. Salvation is believing in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Salvation comes through giving up your own goodness, works, knowledge, and wisdom, and trusting in the finished, perfect work of Christ. That is salvation. Paul goes on to say that this truth is for the Jews first and also to the Greek. This means that salvation has no national, racial, or ethnic barriers. It's given to everyone who believes. And it's neat. I see a diverse group of people in this room. Salvation is for everybody which is awesome. The Jew first, this isn't, you know, preferential treatment for preferential treatment's sake because they're better looking than anybody else. It's because salvation came through Jews, right? Jesus was a Jew. That was his chosen people from the foundation of his redemptive plan. And then the Gentile is a catch-all for everyone else in the world. Now, this is a great irony for the woke folks who would say that the gospel is racist, like Ibram X. Kendi, and is exclusive But here we see that the gospel is actually opposite of that. It's available to all, regardless of ethnicity. Okay? The fourth word for um, the gospel, understanding the gospel, is righteousness. Righteousness. In verse 17, we see, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous will live by faith. Faith activates the divine power that brings salvation in that sovereign act, the righteousness from God is revealed. And this is a beautiful truth. A beautiful truth. God imparts his own righteousness to those who believe. This is the imputation of God's righteousness, that we are credited with his righteousness, though we did nothing to deserve it. This is one of the most beautiful components of redemption. 
Paul confessed to the Philippians, I count all things to be lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God upon faith. And to the Romans, he said, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. This is the gospel. It is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. If you put your faith in Christ, God will put his righteousness in you as a gift so you can be fully justified and redeemed in his presence. That is the salvation the world needs. That is what woke people need. That is the answer to all life's problems. It's absolutely incredible. And the gospel is an interesting thing. There's three components, at least. There's probably more implications of the gospel. But there's three for sure. The first we already discussed today, which is it's a means of salvation. None of you who know Christ as Savior, myself included, David included, were able to be saved apart from the gospel. Somebody told it to us and we believed it because God gave us the, empowered our faith to believe. So it is, it is one of the implications that it's a means of salvation. The gospel, for those of you who are believers in this room, the gospel is a means of your sanctification. I don't know if you thought about it that way. No believer worth his salt, no believer who's serious about holiness gets very far from the cross. He stands under it. He clings to it. The truths that are, that are exhibited through the gospel are the very things that propel him forward towards holiness. And so if you're a believer, there's not a day that goes by that you don't sit, run the, uh, the events of your life, your own sinfulness, the things that you see through the filter of the cross. And that's the gospel. So it's a means of salvation, it's a means of sanctification. The third implication is that it's a mandate to take to the world. The world, woke or not, needs this gospel. And so if you're a believer, you don't just sit on it and say, well, I got it. Thank goodness. You keep it to yourself. No, you take it out to the world. You take it out to the world. And the thing is about the gospel is before the good news of the gospel can be preached to an unbeliever, the unbeliever must understand the bad news. This is where our next section of Romans comes in. We're going to take the light of the gospel now, and we're going to take it into the darkness. So the next section is the wretched. So we're leaving the righteous. I'm sorry, that's joyful, and that's wonderful truth of the gospel. But we're going to go to the wretched now. And I do want to note, so 118 to 32, this outline, this section here came from the Read, Mark, Learn study guide to Romans. I got from David, actually. It's put out by St. Helens. It's a great Bible study on Romans. It's great. I love it. Um, so I highly recommend it to you. Um, the first thing we must consider regarding the wretched is God's wrath against unrighteousness. We have to understand God's wrath. This is uncomfortable, God's wrath doesn't fit into our God is love, right? God is light uh, only. God is uh, squishy and comforting and my, my bro. It doesn't fit in with that. 
But it's very true, and we have to understand. Because verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So a natural first question is, well, well, from what do people need to be saved? It's a good question. And before we answer that, though, I promise we will answer that, we need to understand some, some basics about what God has revealed of himself to us. So first, God has revealed himself to humanity as the one and only almighty creator and sustainer of everything. That's important, especially in our context of Romans 1 here. He has revealed himself as the creator. Secondly, he is perfectly holy, Isaiah 6, 1 through 5, and unable to tolerate evil. Okay? He has no equal, thirdly, he has no equal, and no one can stand against him. This is what God has told us about himself. That's Isaiah 40. Rebellion against him is inherently foolish and always leads to judgment. Always. Fifth, Israel's rebellion seen in the Old Testament is, is, is viewed in terms not of her wrongdoing, not in the things that she did wrong, but in her unfaithfulness to God. If you ever read the account that God um, speaks of uh, as Israel as an adulterous wife, you get a sense of the heartbreak of our Lord. God's greatest concern is for his people uh, for his people is how they relate to him. That's why the first three of the Ten Commandments deal with this expectation of exclusive worship. One, two, and three all deal with you can't have any other gods. You can't have any idols. You cannot rebel against me and, and turn your affection to something or someone else. Israel's idolatry wasn't that they, the sin wasn't that they pursued other gods necessarily. The original sin in that is that they first, in order to pursue them, had to reject God. That's what God hates. And that's what we're going to see playing out in this whole section of Romans 1, um, 18 through 32. So the, that is important. We also need to understand something else about uh, God's wrath. The idea of a wrathful God, even though it goes against the wishful thinking of fallen human nature, God's wrath is his active anger against the rebellion of humankind. Anger. That's a, that's a serious word when you also put God next to it. And he is angry with your sin. Sometimes that anger is immediately seen when an individual is killed for doing what is forbidden. And we remember the example of Uzzah, who the ark was falling and he rebelliously went to go keep it from falling on the ground and he dropped dead. And some of us might have questions about that because wasn't he just trying to do a good thing? The purpose is is he did it on his own power. He didn't trust God to keep that thing from staying up. He rebelled against God and God dropped him like that. Sometimes it's very dramatic, like when the entire city is destroyed, like Sodom in Genesis 19. Often, oftentimes God's anger and his wrath is expressed mostly as the promise of future judgment. What time are we out of here? 11.30. At 10.30? Unbelievable. 
I timed this thing. All right. It's 10.30. Okay. Um, so we're going to skip. Revelation 20 talks about future judgment. So if we're asking from what do people need to be saved, right? That was our original question. From what do people need to be saved? It's commonly held that we need to be saved from our own sins. But the very serious truth revealed in this section of Romans is that we need to be saved from God himself. From God. Not from your sins. You're not saved from your sins. You're saved from God. You're rescued from his anger and wrath. That is what you're saved from. So what's the purpose of his wrath? Just as he reveals his righteousness in verse 17, he reveals his wrath in verse 18. And both are meant to lead people to repentance and faith. His righteousness and his wrath are there to reveal his plan to redeem you. Um, God is angry at our unrighteousness, but his good news concerns a righteousness that comes from him. God's solution is, meets us at the point of our greatest need. We have no righteousness of our own, so he gives us his. Beautiful. The second aspect of the wretched that we have to consider is that mankind has rejected God. Verses 19 through 20, it says, Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, both his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood the through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Verse 19 states this essential principle of revelation, that God revealed himself in creation, that we can know about God because God has clearly revealed himself to us. The world around us tells us at least two fundamental truths, that the God who created is powerful and that he's worthy of worship. Those two things, if creation tells us nothing else, it tells us that. Now, all you have to do is see a child be born or look inside the human body and see how the heart functions or see the, look to the heavens and see the billions of stars or dig into the life cycle and hierarchy of creation to see the order. Well, however you want to observe creation, it all points to a creator. And that leaves people in verse 20 without excuse. Man is now culpable. And culpable is an important term. It means that uh, you, you merit condemnation or blame. So when an individual is said to be culpable, it's meant that he is legally responsible for a criminal act. He's guilty. Now, the revelation of God in creation is not salvific revelation, but it is revelation that says that there is a God. And when you reject him, you're rejecting him based on knowledge of that. You're willfully rejecting him. And God says you are guilty because of that. Thirdly, God gives sinful man over to their own sin. This is a difficult truth. Because this says that um, first sin is a rebellion against God in verses 21 through 23. But it also says that God abandons men to their own sin. He actually gives them over to it. He gives them over and cuts loose the reins of his uh, restraint against sin and gives you over to pursue sin to its fullest extent. And that's what we're seeing playing out in society right now. That it's actually a part of his present wrath. It's not future wrath. It's not instantaneous wrath. It is present, ongoing wrath. Because now he's saying, okay, you want to rebel? You want to reject me? I reject you. And I'm giving you over to your sins and all the consequences that come with it. 
There's a pattern to this in, in Romans. Um, and this is the coolest thing that came out of that uh, Bible study, this pattern that presents itself. Verse 23, verse 25, and 28 show how man rejects God. They exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in verse 23. They exchange the truth of God for a lie in verse 25. They did not see fit to acknowledge God in verse 28. Well, for each rejecting of God of, uh, by the unbeliever, there is a corresponding response by God. He rejects them. He abandons them over to their sin. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them over. Verse 28, just as they, God gave them over. He does not merely leave us to ourselves. He actively hands us over to further rebellious acts. He sets us free to pursue our sin without restraint. This is really important to understand. Verses 26 through 31, that whole laundry list of of sins, we don't have to get into that. It's self-explanatory. These are the ongoing wrath of God of people allowing them to be pursuing those sins. It's not an exhaustive list. But it, it, it is very comprehensive, and, and the woke culture, you can see it playing out all over the place. So when we look at that laundry list from verse 26 through 32, there's a couple of observations about it. One, it's easy to see that many of the tenets of woke ideology are called out in that list. Homosexuality, burning desire towards one another, the lack of acknowledgement of God, the arrogance, the violence, the deceit, the malice, da, 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 all of that. You see it playing out. Also, there is no scale of better or worse sins. That's interesting. Envy, for instance, is right next to murder. Very interesting. Um, This list is overwhelming, and you may even recognize some of those sins in yourself. You may see yourself in that list. Now, I want to remind you that John one, First uh, John one nine reminds us that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Note that if you have not truly accepted Christ, this list will be part of what God uses against you in judgment and may be ready to turn you over to them if you are in rebellion against him. I used to think, and this is important, and we're almost done. I used to think that this group of people that Paul is referencing here were a group of unsavable people. That God had abandoned them forever. That this was just the, the vessels that were created for destruction, folks. But that's not the case here. That's not the case. Turn with me quickly to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteousness, the, I'm sorry, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's a similar list to Romans 1. But then what does verse 11 say? What does verse 11 say? And such were some of you. But you were washed but you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. The church of Corinthians was filled with people who had been abandoned by God to pursue their sins, to realize the futility of that pursuit and have nowhere to turn except God. And God saved them and gave them his righteousness. 
That is the amazing grace of God that he offers, his righteousness to those who lack their own. So in conclusion, we live in a very dark world. If you're saved, you have a mandate to take this gospel message to the world around you. If you're unsaved, you need this salvation. You need it. And you might be asking yourself, what is the gospel? I mean, Mr. Carr, thanks so much for bringing this. I didn't hear the gospel clearly today. So I want to share just this last clip and then we're out of here. Um, This is the gospel that you need to take out and for which you need to be sanctified by if you're a believer. When people say, no, our, our problem is this, our problem is that, we say, no, 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 our problem is that God created the world and God created man and he put man in the garden to keep the garden and he gave the man a command and he held that man to perfect, perpetual obedience to that command and he promised him life if he kept it and death if he didn't and he didn't keep it, he ate and because he ate, because of that one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. And everyone born from that man through ordinary generation inherited that man's sin nature. And because of that sin nature, sins proceed from it. And our world is broken because of that sin. And we stand guilty before a holy and righteous God. And we know that he's holy and we know that he's righteous and we crave justice but the problem is that if God gives us justice we all die and so that God in his goodness and in his mercy sent forth his son who was not born of ordinary generation but was born of a virgin yes the virgin birth matters why because if he's born of ordinary generation he's born in sin But because he's not born of ordinary generation, he's not born in sin. He's clean of sin. His record is clean. And he keeps his record clean. And he obeys God's law. And because he's fully God and fully man, he obeys the law of God on our behalf in his active obedience. And then in his passive obedience, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. All we like sheep had gone astray. Each of us had turned to his own way, but God laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And Christ died for sin once for all, the just for the unjust. And God imputes our sinfulness to him. And he nails our sinfulness to the tree. And Christ dies and raises again on the third day for our justification. And there's another imputation that righteousness of Christ is actually imputed to us so that God can be both just and the justifier of the one who places faith in Jesus Christ so that all those who come to Christ may enter in so that all those who place faith in Christ might be saved but not only saved but sanctified because he's the firstborn of many brethren We're justified and we're adopted into the family of God. And we're sanctified. And as his children, we begin to bear the family resemblance. And we're further sanctified throughout this life by the very same gospel that saves us. Until one day when it's all said and done, we're not just saved from the penalty of sin. 
We're not just saved from the power of sin, but one day we're glorified and saved from the very presence of sin. That's the gospel that we preach. That's the gospel that we need. And that's the gospel that's more than enough. Nope, that's okay. Thank you, guys. Thanks.